Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. I have this, like, I, I don't know how old I was, um, but I have this, like, real clear image of going with my dad into downtown Warren. I grew up in Warren, Ohio. Downtown there was this big bank, kind of this stately looking bank, had this colonial kind of architectural look to it. And I can remember going to the bank, in with my dad, little kid, we walk in and he asks for a banker and we sit down at the banker's table and he said something, I didn't know what it was, and the the banker stepped away. And a few minutes later he came back and he brought out this little metal container called a safety deposit box. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like if you have something that's really valuable and you're not so sure you wanna keep it at your house, you can take it to the bank and they'll put it in a safety deposit box and they'll lock that and then they'll put it in a vault and they'll lock that and then when they leave at night, they lock the doors to the bank. You know that, right? So you can't just, so that's how that works. And so this was good and I was like, I'm a kid. I'm sitting there, I was like, this is awesome because I don't know what it, I have no idea what it was that we went there for, but I thought it was really cool and my dad was a big deal because the bank had his stuff and it was all locked away. And whatever it was, it must have been a treasure. We're in a series of messages that we're calling A Traveler's Guide to the Bible. And our hope is that as we go through these three weeks of talking about the Bible, that you will not only appreciate the scriptures more, but that you'll understand more about how to read them and how to allow them to impact your life. And it can be tricky because I think a lot of times we can look at this book, the Bible, and we can be overwhelmed by it, or we're not sure what to do with it, or we're not sure where to start, or we're not sure how to understand it. And it can be risky because we can think, well, I've just got to kind of trudge my way through this. Do you remember when you were in school? I can remember this being in a, in a literature class in high school or college, and they'd say, here's this big, massive book. You have to read this. And I would say, oh, no. Anybody? And then you go to church, and your pastor says, here's this massive book. You have to read this. And some of you go, don't tell God, but oh, no. I don't know what to do with this. My hope is that you won't picture the Bible like it's a homework assignment, but think of it a little bit more like a a collection of safe deposit boxes that you might find in a bank. This is pretty impressive, isn't it? (laughs) I didn't build it, so like this is... (laughs) Like, like, this is cool. And what you have at the Bible is not just one book that you have to trudge your way through. If you're not aware of this, the Bible's actually not just one book. It's more like a library. There are 66 different books that are in the Bible. And what I want you to see today, think of it not just like a homework assignment. Think of it like a bank. And that in every one of these boxes, if you will, in every one of these books, when you open it up, there is a treasure inside of there for you to find. There is something inside of there that when you reach into that book, the banker, who is God, who owns all these things, has already put those treasures inside of there. What's cool is because he's the same banker, all of these treasures connect to one another. And yet they're all special and they're unique and they're just waiting for you to open them up to be discovered and to be enjoyed as a gift from God to you. That's how I hope you'll look at scripture today. So before we dig into some of the specifics, and we're not going to cover a lot of ground today, we're only going to work our way through 929 chapters today, okay? So that's, so that's it, all right? And when you go to lunch after church today, and you see people come in from other churches, I want you to look at them and go, what scripture did you cover today? Yeah, we only covered 929 chapters. Just kind of give them one of those, right? 
don't. Let's just talk about, let's talk about what the Bible is for just a few moments. The Bible is 66 different books. So it's not just one book. You have 66 different books. And the Bible is divided up into two kind of major sections. The Bible is divided into two major sections, the Old and the New Testament. And that's what we call those. If you're looking at this kind of massive thing here, you've got these 66 books. There's 39 Old Testament, 27 New. They're divided, if you will, kind of right here. There's a 400-year gap that we'll talk about in a minute between Malachi and Matthew historically. So the Old Testament is Genesis through Malachi. The New Testament is Matthew through the book of Revelation. And we kind of have it laid out here kind of in a timeline sense, if you're looking at the Bible, where we begin with Genesis and then move down and start the different columns and then end eventually over here at the book of Revelation. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors. You think about that. This is a collection written over a 1,500-year time period, more than 40 different people, and what's fascinating is that throughout all these books, there's a common thread. There is a unique theme that runs through them all. The Bible was originally written in three languages. The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew because Hebrew was the language of the Jewish people. The New Testament is primarily written in Greek because Greek is the language that was spoken in the time that the New Testament was written, kind of globally at that time. And then there's little bits in both the book of Ezra and the book of Daniel that are written in Aramaic. Not a lot, just a little bit. So primarily Hebrew and Greek. So sometimes when we're talking about the Old Testament, we might say, well, this Hebrew word, when it's translated, means this. That's why we say that. Or if we say this Greek word, when we're talking about the New Testament, that's because it was originally written in those languages. The authors were kings and peasants, philosophers and fishermen. They were poets, statesmen, scholars, shepherds. Some of them, we know very clearly who they were because they gave us their names as they wrote the books. Others, we have no idea, no clue who it was that actually put pen to parchment and wrote those different books. The Bible can be a little bit confusing to some of us in its structure because it's not laid out the way that you would read a, a novel where it starts at the beginning and kind of works through in a chronological order. Now, you can get Bibles that are called chronological Bibles, and that might be a cool tool for some of you. Or if you're looking for a way to kind of change up your Bible reading, you can get a chronological Bible, which actually puts the, the books in the order that things happen, and so you kind of read it in a timeline. The Bible, as we have it largely presented to us, is divided not necessarily chronologically, and you'll see this by the different colors that we have here, but in more of the literary types that they're collected into. And we're gonna look at each one of those a little bit today as we go through this. Ultimately, this book is about God. It helps us, but it's not about us. It's about us finding out who he is and seeing his work in our lives. And we started this series last week kind of springboarding off the book of Acts that we've been working our way through. And in Acts chapter 17, it tells us about a church in a place called Berea, and they were called very noble. Look at what we read here, Acts chapter 17, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, 
For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I told you last week when I read that, I was like, oh, I want to be a part of a church like that. I want to be a part of a church that examines the scriptures, that checks to see if what they hear lines up with God's word, who allows the scriptures to impact and change their lives. And so last week, we talked about kind of how to get the most out of your Bible reading. We talked about that SOAP, SOAP method. Anybody remember that? Kind of scripture, observation, application, prayer, and we started what we called a 21-day Bible reading challenge. And I encouraged you that for these three weeks that we're in this series, if it's not something that you already practice, start picking up God's word and spending time in God's word. And some of you are like, man, this is cool because, because it started last Sunday, so that would mean of those 21 days, seven are done, 14 are left, and some of you are saying, I'm two days in, <laughs> right? Because you're not real consistent so far. And that's all right. What did we talk about? Don't give up. Don't quit just because you think you fall behind. Get into God's word, and especially during this season, let God's word speak to you. Here's what's interesting. In Acts chapter 17, it says that the, the people in Berea, in that church, were noble because they examined the scriptures. Well, what scriptures were they examining? Were they reading the book of Acts? <laughs> no, it hadn't been written yet. Were they, were they reading Paul's letter to Philemon? No, because it hadn't been written yet. Here's what's interesting. You didn't have any of the New Testament, so when they were reading the scriptures, they were reading the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the, the Jewish scriptures. And so today, we're gonna focus our attention on those 39 books in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is for many of us, when we hear about the Old Testament, we kind of go, mm, yeah, the the Old Testament. Talk to some people who are like, I'm, I'm more of a New Testament kind of person. Or some people say, well, the, when I read the Old Testament, it doesn't make sense. And what does make sense can have a tendency to offend me. And so sometimes we ask some questions, some people that it's just surprised me that have said, I, I just, I really don't get into the Old Testament. Jay Leno once did a little sketch where he asked people to name one of the Ten Commandments. And when he did, somebody shot their hand up right away and said, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> it's not one of the Ten Commandments. And people laughed, but the other people that were a part of this thing didn't do much better. In fact, they've done some polls and they show that 80% of Americans claim to believe the Ten Commandments, but very few can name as many as four of them. And when they continued to do this poll, they found out that half of all adult Americans cannot identify the first book of the Bible, which is, anybody? A plus, you're doing great. They go on with this poll to find out that 14% identify, watch this, 14% identify Joan of Arc as Noah's wife. <laughs> She's not. Here's the deal though, when we, when we look at the Old Testament, Western culture does not understand stories about land disputes and water rights and tribal feuds and arranged marriages. That part of the ancient world or that part of, of another kind of culture, we read that and we say, I don't get it. And it can often lead us to boredom or confusion or outrage over some of the things that we read there. And so for some of us, it's easier for us just to go, Old Testament, ah, I'll probably just stick to the new. 
I'll probably just, you know, skip the old. I'd rather just avoid it. Or we like to go to the Old Testament and we like to pull out the little parts that we like, right? We kind of cherry pick the verses that we like to have and hang on our walls. And we ask the question when it comes to the Old Testament, is reading the Old Testament really worth the effort? The Old Testament covers a time period from the creation of the world up until 400 years, 400 BC, before Jesus was born. It's three-fourths of the Christian Bible, if you think about it. So it's, it's a large portion of our scriptures, 929 chapters, 23,214 verses. And my fear is that, that you will be um, overwhelmed by looking at this thing and go, I can never work my way through this. My hope is that you won't be overwhelmed, but that you'll recognize that in every one of these, there's something for you to open up that God has there for you. There's a treasure that's in there, and you can take these books as they are, one at a time, one of a kind, and explore them in a powerful way. And one of the things we ask is, how do we know we have the right books? Like, because there's other things that were written during those time frames. How do we know these are the right ones? Now, we'll dig in more next week to the idea of what's called canon. Sometimes they talk about the, the canon of scripture or our books canonical. But when it comes to the Old Testament, what we find is that there's very little dispute about what are actually the books that we consider to be a part of our Old Testament. If you were to look at a Hebrew Bible, you would see that we have 39 chapters in our Old Testament. The Jewish scriptures have, or not 39 chapters, 39 books, excuse me. The Jewish scripture has 24 books. And we say, well, why the discrepancy? What you'll find is that the Jewish Bible, their scriptures in our Old Testament are actually all the same material. It's just arranged differently. And some books are combined into one. Where we have Ezra and Nehemiah, you would find those two books combined into one book in the Jewish scriptures. And so we see real consistency in what we believe to be the inspired scriptures of the Old Testament. Where sometimes people ask, but what about the Apocrypha? Anybody ever heard of the Apocrypha? Like if, if you come from maybe a Catholic background or some Orthodox traditions, you know that there are some places between the Old and the New Testament, a collection of books that some traditions will insert in there called the Apocrypha. These are books that were written during those 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, and they're helpful. Like if you read them, they'll help you to understand the world that Jesus came into, but they've never been considered to be biblical. They've never had the authority of scripture, and no one even considered that up until 1546, when, and we won't go into all the details, but at that point, they were kind of added 1,500 years after the time of Christ. But what's interesting is that the early church historians did not think that they should be in the Bible. You never hear Jesus or anyone else in the New Testament quote them, and so though they're historical, they're not scriptural. But the Old Testament, it is. Next week, we'll look a little bit more about how we got our Bible. We'll talk a little bit more about how it's translated and what translation is the right one. But the Old Testament is incredibly important because Jesus himself quotes from it over and over again. He mentions it repeatedly, and he quotes it with authority. He quotes it and mentions the prophecies that are being fulfilled through him. The Old Testament itself is quoted nearly 300 times in those 27 books of the New Testament. Do you think it's important? I mean, sometimes people say, 
that the Old Testament isn't that important. What's important is the New Testament. But the New Testament, over and over again, over 300 times, says that the Old Testament is important. So you cannot deny the value of the Old Testament. In fact, if you say that the Old Testament is important, church history would say that that's heresy. You read about a guy named Marcion in the ancient times who tried to deny the Old Testament. The Nazis did the same thing leading up to World War II. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, what, what we need to do is have a real faith that's based in Jesus and unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. The problem with that is that the story of Jesus is very clearly hitched to the Old Testament because the Old Testament tells us who he is and what he's all about, and that's what we'll see here today. So what we're gonna do in these next few moments is kind of work our way through kind of these different literary types in the Old Testament, and my hope is that you won't view this like a, like a school class or a homework assignment, but that you'll recognize that each one of these is a treasure that God wants you to discover. Now, when you go to read some of these for yourself, though, you might go, well, I don't know where to start, or I don't know what this is about. Let me give you two websites that, that are really good resources. If you're using the, the Bible app um, on your phone to follow along today with the notes, those links are already there, and we're gonna post them by, by means of social media later this week. But there's two websites, one called biblica.com, where you can go out and get introductions to each one of these books from the NIV Study Bible. There's another great website called the Blue Letter Bible, if you're not familiar with this, and these are free, right? Tons of free resources there to help you read and understand your Bible better, the Blue Letter Bible. But let's jump in here and talk about this, and let's look at these first five books. We kind of got them color-coded to help us see the differences in them. The first five are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and we often refer to those five as the Pentateuch. Anybody ever heard that term? The Pentateuch. What it mean? Have you ever heard of the Pentagon? You know why we call that building the Pentagon? It's got five sides to it. Do you know why we call this the Pentateuch? Because it's five books. And so these books are really important because they start us out, this Pentateuch, sometimes it's called the law, sometimes you'll hear it called the Torah, that's the Jewish term. They give us the foundation really for the rest of the book. In fact, especially even just the first three chapters of Genesis are really significant because they tell us about, anybody remember the fruit? Do you remember when... Eve broke God's law when Eve and Adam broke God's law and got us all in trouble because they were tempted by the ah! the serpent, right? And what did that do? Well, it led to sin. And so what's so powerful about the first part of that book is it helps us to see kind of the stage for the whole rest of the story how God created this perfect place where he could be in relationship with humanity. And because humanity made a choice that brought sin into the world, and as a result, everything changed. In fact, one of the things that you'll find that I think is so significant about this whole collection of books is it starts here, and it shows us how man lost relationship with God. And then the whole rest of this story is about how God goes to great lengths to win that relationship back. How God says, your sin has separated you from me, and I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure that you and I are right again. And so as you go through this story, you watch something significant. It starts in the book of Genesis, in those first three chapters, where God says, I'm gonna make you a promise, Adam. 
that I'm gonna send somebody who's gonna make all this right. What's interesting about this is we, we don't call them promises necessarily in scripture, we call them covenants. You ever heard that term covenant? A covenant's a different thing because sometimes we think of it like a contract where two people just kind of sign something and say, hey, we're gonna agree to do this. A covenant goes deeper. A covenant is based on relationship. A covenant is based on a whole different level of trust. It's something special between you and God. And God makes these covenants in the Old Testament. Starts with a covenant to Adam in those first three chapters of Genesis. And then he makes a covenant with Noah. Then he makes a covenant with Abraham. And then later on, he makes a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. And he makes a covenant with David. And what's so significant about these covenants is that these are promises that God makes to his people based on who he is and the confidence we can have in him. And here's what I don't want you to forget. Those covenants weren't just historical things that happened thousands of years ago. The promises God made then are the promises he still keeps to you today. We have a promise-making God, and even more, we have a covenant promise-keeping God. And these covenants say that we are his people and that he is our God and that we can put our hope and our confidence and our trust in him. And all throughout the Old Testament, it's all about this story of covenant and relationship with God. And this is really significant because you read in Genesis about the beginnings of, of humanity and it introduces us to the Jewish people. And then when we get to the book of Exodus, they're, they're in slavery in Egypt. Do you remember this part? And then Moses, who's Charlton Heston, comes out and helps to lead them, right? I hope you out here. Lead you out the exodus or the escape from Egypt. And then they wander for these 40 years in the wilderness, and God gives them the law, right? And we read about this in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Some of this is tough to understand, isn't it? Anybody read it? Some of this is tough to understand to the point that when you read some of these books of the law, you go, does this stuff even matter? Like, like, why do I have to read today and care about the fact that, that my garment shouldn't be made out of two different kinds of material? And why does it matter whether or not I eat shellfish? And what am I, in, am I not allowed to touch? Like, they had all these laws. And we have to ask the question, if all these laws were in the Bible then, do I still have to follow these laws today? The truth is that many of these laws were really important for the Jewish people at that time, but when Jesus came and died on the cross and paid the price for our sins and then rose again, he fulfilled many of those laws. Mark Driscoll uses a really good example to, to help us understand this. He says, when I was in high school and I would go to school, I would have to sign an attendance sheet and I would have to make sure I went to class and I would have to go to the assemblies and if I missed a day, my mom would have to write me a note to say where I was. But when I graduated, did I still have to do those things? Yes or no? <laughs> no, why? Because when I graduated, I fulfilled the requirements of my school. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the requirements of the law, so we are no longer bound to many of those things. Does that make sense? So like, you'll read a lot about ceremonial laws in there, about how they would worship, and about the sacrificial system. And we're no longer bound to those things because Jesus died on the cross to fulfill those ceremonial laws. And some of the laws are civil laws, right? About how the government should function, but we have our own laws as a nation, right? So those laws may not apply to us, they may be helpful, but we're not bound to them. But then there's also moral laws that we find there. And what's interesting about the moral laws that we find there, like the 10 Commandments, anybody ever heard of the 10 Commandments? Okay, name four of them right now. You, right up there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What's, what's interesting about the Ten Commandments and about the moral laws 
is that we're still bound to those things today. And we don't necessarily like it sometimes that we use the word law. Because we don't necessarily like it that, that somebody has told us what to do. What's significant is that you've got to remember is, is that all of this comes from covenant relationship. Why would God give them the law? He gave them the law because he wanted what was best for them. He gave them the law because they had to be different and protected from the people around them. He gave them the law so that when they followed the law, they could exercise faith in him. See, it wasn't just about not doing the wrong things and doing the right things. It was about relationship. It was about the covenant love that God had for his people. That's why this, this wedding ring is a great illustration of why the law was important. Why do I wear my wedding ring? That's a scary shot right there, is it not? Man, I'm so sorry. <laughs> why, why do I wear my wedding ring? I wear it because I entered into a covenant with Rhonda, my wife, and this is a sign of that. Why did the Israelites follow the law? Because they had entered into a covenant with the God that they loved, and by following the law, they showed their relationship with him. Does that help make sense? I know it helps me. See, there's something powerful in this whole idea of the law and of covenant and of who God is. And if we miss this in the Old Testament, we miss a major part of it. The Old Testament teaches about God's covenantal love for his people, which means that if God made a promise in Scripture, he's keeping that promise to you today. Which leads us to kind of this next section of books. It, the, these teal ones here are what we would call the history books. True confession. These are some of my favorites. I love these books, the history books. So you've got Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. These tell the story of how they go into the promised land and during a season of time when Israel was ruled by what's referred to as Judges. Do you remember when we were in Ruth earlier this year? So these are where these stories come from. And then you have 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. I feel a little bit like Vanna White. 1st and 2nd Chronicles. <laughs> right, you've got all these, these books. Those books have to do with the time when Israel was ruled by the kings. So that's where you read about Samuel and King Saul, King David, King Solomon. It's where you read about prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And at the end of the book of 2nd Chronicles, it's fascinating what it says. It says in, in chapter 36 that over... And over again, God sent his messengers to his people to tell them the right way to live. And instead, they did their own thing until it reached a point where God had to punish them for what they had done. Parents, does that make sense at all? When over and over again you warn, and then at some point you say, something has to be done. And that's when the Israelites went into what we refer to as the exile. There was a 70-year season where they were in, in Babylon and Persia and away from Israel. And there was this season of exile for them. And when they came back out of exile, we have the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther happens during that exile time. And those are the history books that we see that are there. And these books are incredibly significant, not just because they're fascinating, like, I, I love to read those books. The stories that are there, you want a story of adventure? Man, read the book of Joshua. You want to see the miracles that God can do? Read the book of 2 Kings. Watch and see these powerful stories that are there. But there's something more that's happening in these books that I don't want you to miss. Here's what Paul recognized. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. He says, 
These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. He says, look, when you read the Old Testament, you're getting examples for how you should live. So if you're in a place in your life where there's something big ahead of you and you need courage, read the book of Joshua. If you need to believe that God can do amazing things, then spend some time in some of these history books and read about his miracles. If you wonder if you're the right person for what God has put in front of you, read the book of Esther where it talks about how she was called for such a time as this. These are powerful stories that will change you. And you know what I love about them? Is is they are the honest truth. Let's, Let's talk about David for a minute. We read about what an incredible shepherd he was, what an incredible worshiper he was. We read about how David killed the giant, help me out, the giant name, (laughs) Goliath, right? We read about how he's anointed as king and how he chooses all the right things and about what a lousy father he was because he didn't discipline his kids. And then there was the whole adultery murder thing that we read about. See, it's not just the good stuff. It's the ugly stuff too. The Bible helps us to see that these people that we read about had strengths like you have strengths, and these people had weaknesses like the person sitting next to you has weaknesses, right? It's it's that kind of a book that's very honest. What do we do with that? In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11 lists by name many of these heroes from the Old Testament and then says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Here's what I find. When I read these history books in the Old Testament, it's like they help me put my tennis shoes on to run the race that God has called me to run. And they encourage me and they give me confidence and they help me to know that if God did it then, that he'll do it today. True? And that's a powerful truth that's there. Don't miss these books as just boring history. See that these are tools. The history of the Old Testament saints instructs us and encourages us in the race of life. This is a powerful thing. Which leads us then to these next five books in the Old Testament. We we call them the wisdom literature or wisdom books. Sometimes you'll hear them called the writings Sometimes you'll hear them called poetry because primarily for these five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, they're they're primarily made up of, of some poetic things that are there. Don't let poetry scare you off. These are some of our favorite books. If you're honest, for a lot of us, the main place where we go in the Old Testament might be to some of these books that are familiar and favorites of us. So let me, let me give you an example. In fact, there's things there that you might not even know that they come from that place. The book of Job is this incredible story of how a guy lost everything only to learn that God is in charge of everything and can give you back more than you ever lost. And it's in that book that we read passages like this. James, or Job chapter one, verse 21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has, anybody? (laughs) Taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The Psalms are some of our favorite places to go in Scripture. We might not be familiar with much more in the Old Testament, but many of us like the Psalms. Do you remember Psalm 23, the Lord is my? (laughs) Yeah, we know these 
passages and are familiar with them, especially in, in times of need or, or, or fear in our lives. Then there's the book of Proverbs. I love the book of Proverbs. If you're looking for some secrets to success, you'll, you'll find this in the Bible. Proverbs is, is written primarily by King Solomon, and he wrote it as wisdom to give to his young son, and that was the, the premise for when he wrote it. Familiar things like Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Solomon got a little bit older, he gave us some more wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a great book to read if you're depressed or want to be, right? It's kind of got that, it's kind of got that tendency at times for us, right? But it's powerful wisdom because it puts life in perspective. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one said, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Turn, turn, turn. Anybody? Do you know, like, 1960s? Okay, yeah. And then there's the Song of Songs. Some Bible versions, you'll, you'll see it called the Song of Solomon, which is a love song celebrating the beauty of marital love. Here's what's powerful about, about these five books is that when you open them up, there's a tendency that you're going to see yourself in there somewhere. It's kind of like looking in a mirror. And it lets you look deeply into your soul. It helps you, no matter where you're at. If you're in a season of great things going on in your life, you're gonna find a way to celebrate in these books. If you're in a place of great hurt, then you're gonna find healing through this. What's interesting is for many of us, when we're, when we're mostly New Testament people, then we focus an awful lot on faith and on grace, and we focus an awful lot on victory and how we're gonna get to these places. What's interesting about the Psalms is they're really uncomfortable in different places. Like, they talk about how life is tough. Here's what Philip Yancey said. In the Psalms, I found disorientation, confusion, rage, despair, and anguish, such as I had never heard discussed in my church. In my church, we were too quick to move on to a higher experience of spiritual victory. But astonishingly, I learned that these problematic Psalms were the ones the New Testament, and especially Jesus, quoted most often. Look, these are great places, especially if you're new to the Old Testament, for you to begin. If you're going through a season of some emotional um, challenges, good or bad, man, turn to the Psalms. If you need wisdom, spend some time in Proverbs. Proverbs, we've said this before, but it's such a great book because with the 31 chapters, you, you can just pick it up and say, it's September 16th, I'm gonna read chapter 16 today. And look, especially with these books, but I'd encourage you with your whole Bible. Look, I'm a fan of technology. I've got all the apps on my phone. I have, I have Bible study software that I use um, excessively on my computer, my phone, my tablet. Like I've, I've got all those things. But there is something powerful when it's just you and God about sitting down with a printed Bible. Maybe not for you, but I would just encourage you, try it, and you'll see I'm always right. I mean, you'll see I'm right. And, <laughs> and I really do believe that when I sit down with my Bible and I hold that pen in my hand, that that pen works like an antenna. And it helps me to be open to hear and, and ready to capture what it is that God wants to speak to me by his word. When we open up these, these particular five books, the wisdom books provide personal, vulnerable, and practical wisdom for every season of life. Okay, we've still got about 300 chapters to go. You ready? 
There's the major prophets, and these are these, these yellow books over here, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're major prophets, not because they're more important, but because they're longer. I think that makes me like a major preacher, right? It's just because it's longer. So these are important because these books look ahead for the Jewish people. When it's a time where they need to be warned about judgment, or when they're in a tough time and they need to know that God is giving them hope, much like you would do, say, with a pair of binoculars, it helps them to look out there and look ahead and see what's coming. It's prophetically telling them this is what's ahead. And what's interesting, don't miss this, that one of the major messages that all of these books say, but in particular these prophetic books, they tell us that someone is coming. Man lost relationship with God. God is going to great lengths to restore it, and someone is coming to do that. Who is that someone? Isaiah chapter seven. You maybe thought this was a Christmas verse, but this is Old Testament prophecy. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. That's Jesus. The prophetic books point us to Jesus Christ, as does the whole Old Testament. So the major prophets are these longer ones, we call them. The minor prophets would be these next 12. In fact, the, the Jewish scriptures take all of these orange ones and combine them into one book. They were preserved in one scroll in ancient times, and they just call it the 12. And these are what we call the minor prophets. And again, they tell us about how important faithfulness is to Israel and who God is and how he cares for us. And what's interesting about this is it points to Jesus and it helps us to see God for who he really is. One of my concerns about when we read the Old Testament is that we give God a bad rap. So many times people look at, at certain portions of the Old Testament and they say, I don't get it or I don't understand it and I don't like God. And we fail to look at it all in context. Do you think if I showed you 30 seconds of a movie, you could understand what all two hours were all about? But how many people take one verse or one chapter out of the Old Testament and use that to define who God is? If it'll help you, think of the Old Testament as a love letter from God to his people. And it shows his great love for them. It also shows the links that he'll go to to restore relationship for them. Think about it, parents. Are there any links that you would stop at to save your kids? It's powerful to think about who God is and what he does. And God gets a bad rap because he's portrayed so often as this like immoral monster, when actually his, his favorite words to describe his relationship with Israel are either as a beloved spouse or as children. You should think a little bit more about this like a family portrait. I really like this picture because it's like a picture of our family and then it's got our name right there, which is cool. And I often will stand in front of my kids and go, I have called you by my name. No, I've never done that. I've never done that. Until lunch today. I'm doing that at lunch. But do you, do you understand this? God's, God's not mean and angry and just looking to beat somebody up. God is a perfect father who cares for his family. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Listen to what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. 
But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim, Ephraim's another name for Israel, to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Does that sound like a monster to you? No, it sounds like a father who loves his children, and nurtures them, and provides for them, and strengthens them, and helps them. And that perfect heavenly father is the same one who made promises that he keeps and he's keeping those promises to you. And some of you need him to be a perfect heavenly father to you today. And maybe you have a hard time with that because of who your earthly father was. Don't view your heavenly father through the lens of your earthly father. View him through the lens of the word and recognize and see that you have a father who wants to unconditionally walk with you through the seasons of life that you are in. We have a covenant God who makes promises who's there for us and fulfills them, we'll see this next week, through the person of Jesus Christ, to which you go, I really can't relate to those Old Testament people. We're so different. The reality is the Old Testament saints read the scriptures in anticipation of the first coming of the Messiah. They were looking and waiting because they knew that someone was coming. Today, we read the scriptures in anticipation of the second coming of the Messiah. That's Jesus. And the church said, amen. amen. <laughs> you just covered 929 chapters to which you go, so where do I start? <laughs> like, well, what do I do? If, if you're trying to figure out then, if, if I'm gonna explore the Old Testament, where do I begin? Let me encourage you, begin reading where you are. If you're in a season of life that's an emotional challenge, then start in the Psalms. If you're a place where you need wisdom, go to the Proverbs. If you're looking to be inspired, read some of the history books. If you wanna know who God is, then begin in Genesis and see what he says about himself. But don't feel like you gotta go home and read all 39 books before you dare walk back in here again. Because <laughs> it's not like that. These are treasures that we open up and we ask for God, reveal to me what you have to say to me out of these things. And don't be afraid to get help. Don't be afraid to use resources. And when you get to that place and you go, I don't understand what I read, then act on what you did understand. Be faithful and obedient to what God did give to you. Why is this so important? I, I know today's been very different than a lot of other Sundays, but I'm passionate about this. I don't want you to dismiss the Old Testament because look at what Paul said, Romans chapter 15, verse four. For everything that was written in the past, so he's talking about the Old Testament here, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. These books were designed by God for you to discover him so that he could give you hope. Anybody ever seen that show on PBS called the Antique Road Show? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where people take these treasures or junk or whatever it is that they have 
They, they bought it somewhere, they inherited it, they found it in an attic. They take it into these people and, that are experts on these things and they say, hey, will you tell me, does this have value? Is it worth anything? About 10 years or so ago, this guy from Tucson, Arizona, brought in this blanket when the Antique Roadshow came to town. It was something that had been his grandmother's. When he was a little boy, she would cover him up with that when it was cold and he was sleeping at her house and then he inherited it. For years it had been at his house and he had just left it draped and kind of put over a chair in his bedroom. And he knew it was some kind of Navajo blanket but didn't know anything much more about it and so he took it in to have the Antique Roadshow people take a look at it. Watch what happened. Please turn your attention to the screens. Well, Ted, did you notice when you showed this to me that I kind of stopped breathing a little bit? Yeah, you did. <laughs> I'm still having a little bit of trouble breathing here, Ted. It took uh, me by surprise because I, you know, didn't think much about it. Probably a chief's blanket. But that's exactly what it is. And it's not just a chief's blanket. It's the first type of chief's blanket made. These were made in about 1840 to 1860, and it's called a ute first phase. A ute? A ute first phase wearing blanket. A Ute chief's first wearing, phase blanket. wearing blanket. But it's Navajo made. They were made for Ute chiefs. And they were very, very valuable at the time. This is sort of, this is Navajo weaving in its purest form. It's extremely rare. It is the most important thing that's coming to the roadshow that I've seen. Um, do you have a sense at all of what you're looking at here in terms of value? I haven't a clue. Are, uh, are you a wealthy man, Ted? No. Well, sir, um, I'm, I'm still a little nervous here, I have to tell you. Uh, on a really bad day, this textile would be worth $350,000. On a good day, it's about a half a million dollars. Oh my God. And you had no I, idea. I had no idea. I'm just laying on the back of a chair. Well, sir, you have a national treasure. Wow. A national treasure. Gee. When you walked in with this, I just about died. Congratulations. Congratulations. I can't believe this. Whoa. I can't believe this. Congratulations. Thank you. Gee. Well, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm flabbergasted. Don't you just love Ted? <laughs> just blown away by the treasure he had just laying on the back of a chair. And my hope today is that some of you would be amazed by the treasure you've just had laying around your house. That there's something for you in the Old Testament that maybe you've just forsaken or forgot about or didn't think was for you. And I can't wait for the day when you sit down with the Bible in a season of life when God knows exactly which drawer to open up just for you. And there is going to be a chapter and a verse and a sentence and even a word that's going to grip you by the Holy Spirit. And you're going to sit there and you're going to go, I had no idea. And the richness of God's word is going to come alive for you. And you're going to recognize what a treasure it is. Please don't just turn aside on the Old Testament and miss what God has to say to you by his word. It's one thing for you to come in here on a Sunday and receive something from God's word. It's something so much more beautiful when you open it up for yourself and let God speak to you from the treasures that he's put in place for you. And so, Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that in your perfect plan, you have given to us this incredible resource that book by book, 
moment by moment, we can open it up and receive treasures from you. God, even this week, would you speak to us by your word? God, would you help us to find your truths in ways that would remind us that you are a God who in your perfect plan keeps your promises, that you can be trusted, that you're encouraging us and strengthening us right in the places where we live and pointing us to Jesus Christ. Lord, may your word come alive to us as we see you in it. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Father, would you send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.